for a second time. Violence has erupted in the city of Ferguson. They are firing. They are firing rubber bullets and smoke grenades. Now they are firing them into the neighborhoods, into the back of people's houses. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. I had James Howard Kunstler on the podcast a while back. I've had him on a couple times, but the last time he was on, I asked him a question. I said, are, are you surprised that people aren't rioting in the streets right now? And his answer was, my gosh, I've been waiting for it for a long time. And, and the interesting thing is that I have too. I, I knew that's how he would answer that because he's seeing a lot of things in the world that I am seeing as well. The whole thing in Ferguson happened when I was in Lafayette, Louisiana, with Joe Minicosi, who, by the way, you would be listening to a podcast with Joe Minicosi and myself right now if the audio on it had actually worked. We recorded a really great podcast at the kitchen table in our Airbnb house that we had rented for the week, which, by the way, uh, fit exactly what we were doing, uh, was a great place, and was cheaper than one hotel room. Uh, I don't know what that says about the future of hotels, but my gosh, if if I'm camping out for a city in a week doing business work, I'd rather have a, a four-bedroom, you know, a two-bedroom house with a living room and a kitchen and a stove and a refrigerator, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to be able to spread out and do our work in than uh, be cramped up in some hotel room. Anyhow, Joe Minicosi and I recorded a really great podcast, but I somehow goofed up uh on the technical equipment and it's completely not, you, you can't listen to it. Uh, if, if I thought it was salvageable, I would release it and just put some disclaimers on it. It has these high screeching noises in it through the whole thing. It, it's completely not able to be listened to. That doesn't mean you're not going to get a Joe fix. Joe actually did some stealth recording for me and, uh, we're going to have Joe on a podcast real soon, but Joe and I were kind of, Hold up in Lafayette doing some work. Did not have a TV. Uh, probably wouldn't have watched it if we did have it. Uh, we're working kind of around the clock and just completely oblivious to what was going on in, uh, in the, in the suburbs outside of St. Louis. Got back to the office and left on vacation and actually, you know, got back, uh, was here for one day and then left here for maybe half a day. But I was inundated with these emails from people saying, are you going to talk about Ferguson? You, you know, we'd like to hear what you have to say about Ferguson. I had no idea what they were even talking about. So on vacation, I, I tried to dig into it a little bit. And I, I don't watch the news. I, I don't get cable. We don't have cable at home. Uh, our reception is not very great. We just don't, we, we don't really have TV. Uh, you know, I watch shows on Amazon Prime or what have you, but we're not, uh, you know, we're not watching cable news. That's for sure. I haven't seen cable news in a long time. Uh, watch CNBC. Maybe you call that cable news. Do catch that every now and then when I'm traveling. But, uh, I dug in for you guys, uh, to the news and tried to 
you know, digest what was going on, see as much of it as I could. The clip there that I played at the beginning was actually just some raw footage that someone uh, was taking live and uh, it was saved to YouTube, kind of permanently recorded, I guess, for all time. Uh, one of those things that uh, is new with the new media. So I dug into it and the, the thing that, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend I have any great insights on the racial component of this whole thing. Uh, you know, I, I've said before a kind of self deprecating way. I live in this really diverse community here in central Minnesota. We have a, a great amount of diversity. We have all different kinds of Scandinavians. Uh, we have Swedes and Norwegians and, and even some Finns here throw in the occasional German. And, you know, we've got a, a, a lot of diversity here. In fact, my great great grandfather was and i don't even there's a certain certain people have said he's russian i actually suspect he was prussian uh which is not exactly which is not russian uh it's more polish nonetheless uh august marone who moved here had some of that in so i guess you know i i i'm even walking you know really wild diversity here in central minnesota needless to say I have not lived uh, the life that a lot of the people in Ferguson have lived. I certainly am not a member of a racial minority, and I'm not going to pretend that I have any great insights on what that life is like or you know, what kind of things you would endure uh, in that regard that would lead you to riot or you know, be uh, more than what a reasonable person would be upset over what happened uh, with the confrontation with Michael Brown, which I, I, you know, if that happens in this community, I'm not saying we're burning down places and, and rioting in the streets, but people are going to be upset here too. I mean, I, I think any community in the country, people are going to be upset. This one though, to me, has a lot of really interesting kind of planning type of implications to it. And I'll go back to when I talked to Jim Kunzler you know, my, my thing was, you know, the, with the economic system and the way we have set up the system to enrich the banks and enrich the super wealthy and keep the constituent power class in power. Why aren't people rioting? And Jim said, you know, I, I, I don't know. It seems to me like they should be as well. Also, another aspect to that is just this despotic environment that we live in. And it is personified in many of the things that I see in Ferguson, not only from the video footage that I've watched here on YouTube, uh, some of the news coverage that I've been able to pick up, but I spent some time trolling around as I am apt to do from time to time on Google Earth and saw some of the street views. And, and quite frankly, uh, you are seeing essentially 2014 Americana. This is a suburb that has gone through the predictable phase of any suburb. It went through hypergrowth and prosperity. It went through the period of stagnation, and now it is deep into the cycle of decline that every suburb goes through. Uh, this is the natural life cycle of a suburb. I wrote a piece on the blog then when I got back from vacation, and really, it's amazing when I write something, I, I sometimes think that I do really wonderful work and have written something really great and insightful and nobody reads it and nobody cares. 
And then I'll write something that I think is kind of, uh, I was going to say a, a swear word there, but kind of not as good. And people pick up on it and run with it and, you know, share it all over the place. Um, this is one of the latter. Uh, I put together my thoughts and I didn't think they were really worthy of, uh, you know, I, I thought they were worthy of discussion, but I thought they were undeveloped and actually, you know, a, a kind of a nascent thought that needed further developing. Uh, man, our hits just went through the roof and the degree of conversation that has gone on since I put this together. So this week I was invited to, you know, as a follow-up to that blog piece, was invited to go on Minnesota Public Radio and answer some questions uh, about it and about Ferguson and about layout and design of our communities. I want to play that bit for you. It's about eight minutes long. It's an interview that I did with Carrie Miller on the Daily Circuit. Carrie Miller is, a, I think, a a great journalist and does a really great job with the radio show. It was really cool to be on with her. Uh, I did this little segment and I'm going to play that for you. And then we're going to come back and kind of delve a little bit more deeply into a few of the items. Here is Kath, Carrie Miller and uh, myself on Minnesota public radio. It's time for our Voices from the Opinion Blogs and Pages segment. We do it every Tuesday at 9.45. Today, how urban design influences community unrest. Chuck Marone is with us. He's the president of Strong Towns. It's a nonprofit organization that's committed to building civic and financial resiliency. And his opinion piece appears on the Strong Towns blog. He's with us from Brainerd. Chuck, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've been studying the actual locales in Ferguson, Missouri, where some of the confrontations have taken place. What were you looking for as you did that? It was just fascinating to me, the layout and design of the place and how that interacted with the whole conversation that was going on. Uh, the very place where they were having the protests has kind of become ubiquitous with suburban America. It's something we call a strode, a street road hybrid uh, a piece of transportation infrastructure that moves cars quickly but yet tries to provide a, a platform for business and economic development. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a strange, odd environment for people to be gathering in because, first of all, it's, it's not very safe for people to be. Uh, but it's, it's also, you know, in a place like Ferguson or like most of our suburbs, we don't have town squares. Mm -hmm. We don't have gathering places. We don't have kind of natural places for people to congregate. And I just wanted to see, you know, what this looked like, where people were now kind of coming together uh, to show their their outrage. Are these are are what you will find in some of these suburban communities uh, that these transportation byways come in and they divide what would be a naturally cohesive community, or they interrupt where, um, you know, businesses might be built that uh, that might bring communities together? I think that's true in, in a lot of the inner ring suburbs, the suburbs that were originally built, you know, in the, in the inner cities, too, very strongly. Mm -hmm. The places that were originally built around the streetcar, you, you certainly saw that. In Ferguson and in places like it, you actually see that this was the design to begin with. I see. So these neighborhoods were designed to be separated. Uh, they were not designed to have flow of, of individuals in any way except within an automobile. And so essentially every pod of development, whether it's a, a little bit of apartments over here or a little single-family home over here or some strip development from a commercial standpoint over here, they're all separated 
physically from one another. There's uh, essentially a, a moat around all of them with this auto infrastructure where if you're not in a car, it's pretty hard to get around. You know, you posted some documents on your blog about this from Ferguson's budget, and you and it, it's it's right there for everybody to see. If you look at the blog, you can see that community assets like sidewalks and roads and open spaces have been deteriorating. And there has been very little money in the budget to invest in them. So what? how does that influence what we saw happen in Ferguson? This is the kind of decline baked into the equation problem. If Ferguson right now spends 800000 a year just on interest on their debt, but uh, spends 25000 a year on sidewalk maintenance. And you, you don't have to spend much time on Google Earth just looking at the place to see, <laughs> you know, nothing is being maintained very well at all. All of their wealth is being kind of sucked out of the community. This is, in a sense, by design, not intentional design, but it's a byproduct of the way these places are built. All of this stuff was built at the same time. It all follows a natural, predictable cycle of growth, stagnation, and then decline. And Ferguson has reached that decline phase. Everything's gone bad at the same time from your appliances in your house to the roof to the street out in front of you to the sidewalk. And cities, when they reach this standpoint, just lack the tax base to be able to sustain everything that was built during the growth phase. Not only that, they've taken on during the stagnation phase, that middle part, they've taken on a lot of debt to try to keep things going. And this is a very predictable thing that we see in suburbs and exurbs all over the country. You know, I I sense, as you made your argument in the piece and and just now, that you're not just talking about, you know, um, you need to invest in these community assets because then you're going to attract more business to the community, although that will happen. But I also feel like you're saying something about civic pride. It's a little bit of that there, although, you know, it's it's really difficult. I, I would hesitate to look at a place like Ferguson and say it lacks civic pride. It, it's designed not to have a civic nature to it. It's designed to where every individual house or every cluster of homes is isolated from each other. And, and any type of civic pride that there would be would be an artificial construct. We see this a, a lot in suburban areas where they'll have a a big festival and we'll try to get people out and, you know, get them to the park for one day or get them to the street that they're going to close for one day. These are things that in a well-designed place just happen naturally all the time. Uh, People meeting, people running into each other, people congregating. Uh, Our suburbs are not designed to act like that. So trying to impose the notion of civic pride on them is just – it, 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 it's, it's, it doesn't work because they were never designed to be that way in the first place. Chuck Marone is our voice from the opinion blogs and pages today. We do this on Tuesdays at 945. He writes the Strong Towns blog. He's president of Strong Towns. It's a nonprofit organization committed to building civic and financial resiliency. And he wrote a very interesting piece. We've got a link to it on the Daily Circuit page about studying some of these elements around Ferguson to understand about uh, what drove some of the dissent that we saw unfold there several weeks ago. You included a photo on the blog of Ferguson Market and Liquor Store that, that kind of exemplifies your argument. I thought, I've seen those, I've seen the Ferguson Market and Liquor Store in a lot of different communities. Why does it stand out for you as, as what's wrong? 
when I looked at that place, it, it was just prototypical suburban decline development. Uh, you have a corner lot in a historic development pattern that would have been a really high-profile, very expensive place. You had, in my estimation, uh, over a quarter million dollars of public infrastructure, yet you have this tiny little shack that is not only, in a sense, a waste of space or a very low utilization of that space, uh, but you had a fence around it. So you couldn't physically even walk from one property to the next. It was adjoined by this tiny sliver of a sidewalk uh, next to this really fast-moving strode, the street road hybrid, uh, with these very fast-moving cars. In the photo itself, which is just a Google image, uh, you had a bunch of people that were congregated there around an ATM drive through machine. Right. Uh, again, kind of the juxtaposition of the people who are living there today uh, don't have the ante maybe to buy an automobile, yet they're living in a place that is designed to be auto-exclusive. If you're outside of an automobile, you really don't fit in. Uh, that picture kind of encapsulated a, a lot of what is designed failure in uh, these places. Chuck, I have about a minute. What, what makes a strong town? Boy, I don't know if we can do that one in a minute, but, you know, <laughs> Some basically, of the in, in a lot of ways, what we're trying to do is understand the wisdom of places that were built prior to the automobile mm-hmm. and modernize that for the, the modern era. We're not going to get rid of the automobile, but we can sure design and build our places to be financially a, a lot stronger and more resilient. Chuck, I thank you so much for the time. And and again, we've got a link to the blog, and I hope a lot of our listeners read it. Thank you. Thank you. you. I appreciate that. Chuck Marone, president of Strong Towns, nonprofit organization committed to building civic and financial resiliency. That's our voice from the op-ed blogs and pages on the Daily Circuit. All right, so there you go. A lot there and a lot to unpack. I want to start out with this notion of a place being designed to decline. And that's really kind of the operative phase that has stuck here through the writing and through the conversations that I've had subsequently, a place being designed to decline. And I want to flesh that out a little bit and kind of elaborate on it because it's, I had, you know, a few people push back. I mean, like, what about this suburb where, you know, all these rich people live and it seems to be doing fine to me. Let's step back here for a second and just take a look at the standard suburban approach and why it is in its essence designed to decline. When you build a place like this, uh, and, and I'm not talking about the old streetcar suburbs that were essentially built around the same model that, uh, historic cities were built, but just, you know, with, with, uh, you know, with, with the streetcars being kind of the operative thing that would connect different nodes together, you still had what is essentially a traditional neighborhood design style of approach to those places. And really, a lot of that had to do with not only the historical norms at the time, but also the financial mechanisms. These were places that were being built before all the government programs, the Fannie, Freddie, FHA, the the Federal Highway Transportation System, uh, all of the stuff that induced the suburbs as we've come to know them. I'm talking about the auto-based suburbs, the stuff we started building in mass post-World War II on this new model, the model that was designed to give everybody a little piece of Americana 
the left approached this from an equity standpoint. The right approached this from an ownership society standpoint. Uh, this was a, in a universally agreed upon great thing that was going to bring us a ton of prosperity. When these things are built in their first generation, the capital that goes into them uh, is largely comes from one of two places, but but primarily one. The, the first is just borrowed money, right? These are investments in what is often thought of as the classical investment sense. If you run a business, you invest in a machine that allows you to produce uh, something. You're able to sell that something and pay off the loan for the machine and make a profit doing it. That's like a classic investment, right? And when we look at the first generation of suburban development, whether it was individuals taking on home mortgages, whether it was businesses taking on commercial loans, or whether it was uh, you know a, a combination of those, you had a lot of the first the first generation was paid for essentially like an investment. People used their savings. Uh, the federal government was investing heavily in communities and in growth. Uh, the state governments were investing. Likewise, you had the interstate act that was passed that was creating kind of the backbone of these systems. A lot of this was done really, really easily. If you're a local government at this point in time and you're one of these new suburban places, everything for you is just grand, right? You're sitting there one day with a bunch of farm fields. A few years later, you're sitting there with the same farm fields now with suburban development. The cost that you have incurred as part of that transaction is very nominal, again, because most of it was paid for by investment, by others, borrowed money by others. Uh, so all of a sudden, you have all this new tax base. You have all this new revenue coming in. And everything is relatively new. The streets are new. The sidewalks are new. The pipe is new. Uh, your water tower is new. Your treatment plan is new. You probably have a lot of excess money coming in. So you've been able to do some really great things like maybe build a nice park or build a city hall or like we see places doing today, you know, building these big community centers and swimming pool facilities and all these, you know, performing arts centers and all these wonderful things that we can do now because we're a very, very wealthy place. That's the first generation. Uh, and as things are built out, as things mature on that first framework, uh, you have nothing but prosperity. It's all growth. It's all good, right? And think back to, in your own community, the buildings that were built in the 1950s and 60s. Where, where are they today? I mean, they're gone, right? Uh, if, if they're, if they're still around, they're, uh, you know, been rebuilt or redone or they're just, you know, completely dilapidated today. Uh, because they were built differently. They weren't built essentially to be, uh, you know, around to this period of time. And I'm thinking like commercial properties. Look at the residential properties. Uh, you see a lot of the same thing. These are, these are not like the great neighborhoods to be in, right? They were built around the style of the time. I, I think of the drive in restaurants. You know, we have drive throughs today. Back then, the cool thing was to drive in, right? You had the drive in. Uh, we had three of them here in my hometown. They've all been torn out now. They're all gone. Uh, this first generation of that horizontal expansion uh, has a certain look and feel to it that by the time you got a generation out, the styles changed. It became dated, right? About that same period of time, you know, think 25, 30 years into this, 
what else started to happen? Well, on an individual basis, your house started to, I'll say, go bad, right? Your roof needed to be fixed. Uh, if you didn't fix your roof, uh, the new home design and construction was not as forgiving as the old was. Uh, the old construction, kind of the incremental approach, uh, a little bit different style, a little bit different approach to building, uh, less chipboard, uh, more, you know, thicker floor beams, a, a lot of different things that, you know, go into some of those old houses, uh, the masonry, you know, stuff has been around a long, long time. The new houses, not necessarily as forgiving when things are not done, like the roof isn't completely fixed. Uh, siding starts to go bad. Appliances start to fail. Uh, your driveway maybe was paved originally. Now the paving is bad and needs to be fixed. You, you go through and there's all these little tiny things that start to creep up in your own home. So all of a sudden, you know, you have this house. Uh, maybe you're making the mortgage payment. Maybe it's paid off. I, I don't know. You know, it depends on how long you've been in the neighborhood. But things are starting to uh, wear. They're starting to show their age. They're now 25, 30 years old. They're the old design, the old style, starting to wear. At the same time, you look around and the neighborhood itself is going through this wear, you know, the, the, the kind of natural wear and, uh, and friction that happens in any neighborhood as it matures. And so the streets uh, need to be fixed. Uh, some of the pipes might have settled and need to be dug up and fixed. Uh, some of the manholes and, uh, and, and other types of structures uh, have started to go bad and, and need some maintenance. Where does the money for all this come from, right? Well, let's, let's delve into one of these new neighborhoods and let's kind of break people up into three different classes. Let's say in this neighborhood, you've got some wealthy people, you've got some solidly middle class people, and you have some poor people. What do the wealthy people do here? Do they sit through the decline? Do they, you know, maintain their house where their neighbor's house goes into decline or, you know, on a block or cul-de-sac with eight homes? Three of them may start to show their age and their wear and they, they don't, they don't, they don't handle that well. Do they sit and pump a lot of money into their place? No. What do they do? They get out. They move on to the next neighborhood, the neighborhood with the no longer the drive in, but the drive through. You know, they move to the place that has the strip mall with the uh, with a fancier facade on it than the old place. You know, they move to like the next best thing. Right. Because they they have the capacity. They have the ability to do that. Uh, they get out while the getting is still good and they move on to the next place that's going to be appreciating in value. What does a middle class family do? And I, I think this is where. Uh, our development pattern is almost its most pernicious in terms of destroying wealth and destroying an opportunity for people to get ahead. Because what happens is a lot of those like solidly middle class people. And again, I'm not, I'm not talking racial components here. I mean, I, I, I I'm talking about just from a socioeconomic standpoint, people who are solidly middle class in a neighborhood like this, some of them will find a way to move, but a lot of them will gut it out and they'll do the best they can. And they'll forego things like vacation. They'll forego college savings. They'll take on additional debt. They'll do whatever they need to do to patch up the roof 
and you know make make things work and make things go and and basically accept a certain level of decline uh but they've got their nose at the grindstone and they're trying to make things work now let's look at the poor segment that would happen to be in this neighborhood and largely in suburban developments you know the poor segments are segregated, isolated off into apartment complexes or, or different places where they're not intermixed with people who would be middle class or upper income. Uh, what do people who lack uh, a, a lot of resources do in a neighborhood like this? They just simply gut it out, right? They don't have a lot of choice. They don't have a lot of options. Uh, they may uh, benefit from the fact that Housing values are not appreciating as quickly in a neighborhood like this as they are in other places. Remember, there's a, there's a continual upward push in housing prices because of our monetary policy. Uh, you know, that means that in all but the absolute failed neighborhoods, you generally don't see prices go down. Uh, but the lack of kind of hyper appreciation has allowed some poor people to benefit by, you know, moving up to a different house or being able to get in a house where they would otherwise be in an apartment. A lot of these places become rentals and, you know, that you get the kind of rental synonymous with decline kind of effect that goes in. This is all in the second life cycle. People starting to become stuck in the condition that they're in, which is essentially at this point stagnation. At the same period of time, you have the city experiencing the same exact thing because now all of a sudden they have to go out and fix all these roads. They've got to fix all these pipes. They've got to fix all these sidewalks. Uh, you've got all these neighborhoods uh, that you know want to keep their neighborhood the way they are, don't want decline, don't want new people moving in, uh, don't want new investment, which is actually the solution uh, to a lot of these problems is to create a platform where you get new incremental investments over time. Nope, we don't want that. We have a single family neighborhood. We want all single family homes. And so what happens is you get uh, the city in a situation where they're rather stuck. They look around at the tax base they have. They realize, they probably don't realize this, but it, it, you know, with our strong town's eyes, we can see what's going on. We realize that there isn't the tax base. There isn't the revenue. There isn't the money coming in. There isn't the wealth there in this neighborhood to maintain all the pipes and the pumps and the valves and the sidewalks and the curb and everything that is needed to keep it going. And so what choice do you have? You have really two options uh, that you face as a city. The first is to raise taxes. You know, you'll do that to a degree and you'll find other ways to assess people or charge fees or do whatever you can to make money, uh, you know, make ends meet financially. But the other thing to do is to borrow money. Uh, you, you know, you, you, I guess the third thing would be to put things off, but that really doesn't come into play till you get into that third life cycle, which we'll talk about here in in a second. In the second life cycle, what you do is you borrow money. You take on lots and lots of debt. And you do this because in the first life cycle, you convince yourselves that streets are an asset. You convince yourself that pipes are an asset and that the more we invest in streets and pipes and pumps, uh, the wealthier we're going to be because that's what happened 25 years ago when we did that. We built a street we got instant growth, uh, we got wealth, and we could build this great community center. Now, um, you know, we just need to suck it up and make these investments. And what you're really doing is you're mistaking a cat, you're mistaking an insolvency problem for a cash flow problem. 
uh, cities in this situation will look and say, well, we just, you know, lack the cash flow. And so what we need to do is instead of trying to fix streets every year with the limited budget that we got, let's just take that limited budget we got, turn it into debt payments, go get a big loan and fix all this stuff all at once. That sounds like it's a really seductive thing. It sounds like a really great idea. The problem is that it's not a cash flow situation that you have. It's an insolvency situation. And because cities don't do their books the way that they should, uh, you know, and, and that's for a variety of reasons, you know, from accounting rules and accounting practices, uh, up to, you know, it's just better not to ask some questions sometimes. Because of that, cities just ignore this, uh, this problem and wind up taking on lots and lots of debt. We see, uh, the city of Ferguson spending today $25,000 a year on sidewalks and $800,000 a year on debt. That's a third of their total levy. So, you know, it, it's, it, it is a astronomical sum of money that you get caught up in this debt cycle during that second phase of stagnation. When the growth is over, all the bills start to come due. Now let's get into that third phase, decline, right? This is when you've kind of run out the clock on stagnation. You, you've, you've patched the holes as well as you've could. You've put off things as long as it could happen. Uh, you've, you know, m- kind of made do as well as you could. But you get to the point where the insolvency is just so overwhelming. There's so little wealth there compared to the overall obligations uh, that you, you just, you, you can't keep it up anymore. And let me pause there just because I know a few people blanch at that. They'll say, well, my gosh, you've got a $100,000 house. Why can't you pay $10,000 to fix the roof? Because you don't have $10,000, right? Because the person living in that house can barely afford the $100,000 house. Where are they going to find the $10,000 to fix the roof, let alone all the money to replace all the appliances, let alone the money to fix the driveway, to replace the yard, to fix the well, uh, to put in the, you know, the new sewer line? You start to realize very quickly when you get into that third life cycle that houses are not assets. Uh, their money sucks. They're, in a lot of ways, huge liabilities. We, because of the way we've structured our economy, from a monetary standpoint, uh, with property values, you know, appreciating at or greater than, uh, the rate of inflation, we have grown accustomed to houses being this kind of store of wealth and store of value. When the reality is, particularly with the way we build them today, and I'm talking about actual construction practices, typically with the way we build them today, a house is not very much different than a car, really. You drive a car off the lot and it decreases in value. Uh, a house essentially has a lot of those same characteristics to it. When we get into this third phase, the decline phase, what we see is that the, the essentially the paradigm has shifted. The wealthy people have all left. The upper middle class people have left. The middle class, you know, the solidly middle class, the lower middle class people have, have started to get, in a sense, kind of sucked down, uh, and, and almost like locked into place because they didn't abandon the ship quickly enough. And so they're essentially going down with the ship. Look around your neighborhood. You see the houses that people just given up. Uh, things are, you know, radically in decline. Neighborhoods that, you know, have houses that aren't mowed, where the grass isn't mowed is kind of like the first indication. 
then you get, you know, the window that breaks and gets boarded up or you get the, the roof that has the tarp over it. I mean, you, you start to see these things in these neighborhoods where you experience this level of decline. It's, it's, it, it is the phase where all of the, in, in a sense, in incentive to invest in the neighborhood by people who are there, uh, who have the means to invest is gone. And the only thing that you're left with is people who, by the structure of the neighborhood, lack the ability to invest in maintaining or keeping up their homes. One of the astounding things that I've heard about Ferguson from some of the ignorant uh, you know, folk that have been talking about this are, well, why don't these people keep up their homes? And why don't these people take care of things? And it's just a, a basic sign of respect and decency. You don't understand what's going on. You don't understand, but by the time you get to this decline phase, there isn't any wealth left in the community. And why would you? I mean, you would be a fool to go into one of these neighborhoods and say, I'm going to be the one person who fixes my roof, replaces all my appliances, takes the, the little remaining wealth that I have, paints my house up, you know, keeps this great front yard and does all this stuff amidst this whole a sea of decline around you, right? Why waste your money? This this is not an illogical move on people's behalf. What happens to cities in this same period of time? This is where you get into the, the failure phase of this suburban Ponzi scheme, where all of a sudden now you've run out your ability to uh, you know, you, you, you've gone through the growth phase. You've run out your ability to keep this all going by leverage and debt. And now you're at the point in time where uh, the insolvency is just you know, hitting you across the face. And we see cities acting in a very predictable way. Uh, they have a kind of irrational urgency to look like they're doing something. So subsidizing big businesses to move to town, subsidizing uh, different enterprises to move around, you know, the economic equivalent of rearranging the, the deck chairs on the Titanic. Um, you see the kind of typical politicians um, descend with the grant, you know, the counterproductive grant programs. And I, I'm thinking of a place like Chester, Pennsylvania, where you come in and build the soccer stadium and the casino and you do it literally two blocks from some of the greatest pockets of despair. Pretend that somehow you're doing something great for this community. Uh, yet, you know, you, you can't even walk hardly from one place to the other. It's one of the most despotic places from a design standpoint that I've ever been. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, we, we in our benevolence rain down on these poverty stricken places. Uh, this kind of top down largesse in what we think will be good for them. At the end of the day, it obviously serves the entrenched interests. I mean, when the Walmart comes in, when the dollar stores come in, when the McDonald's comes in, when these places are all subsidized either directly through some direct subsidy or indirectly through uh, the huge amount of spending on the transportation alternatives that dominate these places. Uh, you know, you, you're left with... Uh, very little from an economic stamp, from an economic base that serves the people actually of these communities. So the city uh, goes through that. They also have kind of the, and no offense to, to people out there, 
uh, the, the come to Jesus kind of moment uh, where they just decide to either look the other way or to uh, intentionally not do things that they know they should do. We have the street. We need to fix it. We have, if not a contractual obligation, certainly a social obligation to fix this street. We're just not going to do it. And we're not going to do it because we don't have the money. And we know that the people on the street will not gripe uh, and organize enough to force us to do it. We're going to instead pool our resources and spend our money on these areas where people will organize and will come out. And so what you see is even within a community like Ferguson, pockets of deep prosperity starting to emerge uh, while you still have pockets of some affluence that continue to exist. The resources get allocated around. They get allocated around to the people who show up to the meetings, the people who uh, participate in the process, the people who understand how the systems work. And so those places experience decline in a, in a different way than the real pockets of poverty where the city just starts to walk away from. You see a shift in, uh, you know, the budgeting priorities. So, uh, a city like Ferguson now all of a sudden is getting 20 plus percent of its money from things like police fines. Uh, you know, we go out and patrol the streets. Uh, I see the cops here in my hometown, which is, uh, you know, quite a ways along that cycle of decline. Uh, I see the cops out. I know exactly where they park. They know right where to go to get the tickets that they, you know, need. I, I, I can't say that that's why they're out doing it, but certainly the way that the system is set up, the incentives that they have, uh, the funding pressures that they have, if they weren't out doing it, a lot of police jobs would be gone and would be cut. And so while I, I think, you know, you corner the police chief, he's going to say, well, no, we're just, you know, enforcing the law. Uh, it's a very convenient cycle when you can fund 20% of your budget through fines that you levy on essentially your own people, your own impoverished people who can't afford to pay taxes are now expected to pay fines. We see this all the time. And in Ferguson, it is uh, you know rampant. It is really, really, really uh, a tragic thing. So you have these kind of strained relationships created between the people who are living in this neighborhood who are paying generally high taxes. I mean, this is the astounding thing about the work that Joe Minicosi has done too. Uh, we have shown, and, and Joe's work has shown this really clearly, that a lot of these really poor neighborhoods uh, with a high level of kind of socioeconomic distress those neighborhoods are paying on a square foot basis way more taxes than the affluent neighborhoods. Uh, Joe, who lives in Asheville, North Carolina, in his presentation often shows his own house, which is not in a distressed neighborhood, but is in one of the older neighborhoods, one of the um, you know more dense style of neighborhoods, and, and then shows the governor's mansion, uh, which is uh, you know a very posh place uh, up in the hills. Uh, you know, huge amount of acreage and shows essentially what the value of each would be. You know, if, if the governor's mansion was privately owned and paid taxes, here's how these two line up. And it's bizarre because the little private house pays vastly more in taxes 
uh, on a per acre basis than anything that you see in those wealthy, affluent neighborhoods. So you have this uh, problem where the interests of the city begin to essentially diverge from the interests of its own residents. And, you know, not, not uniformly, uh, but, you know, in a very um, kind of neighborhood by neighborhood sense, uh, you will get some, you, you will get some neighborhoods that are essentially surviving off of sucking the little bit of remaining wealth left out of these other neighborhoods. There's one other aspect to this that I haven't brought up yet that I, I want to talk about, and that is the regulatory environment that is created during these three cycles as well. During the growth phase, uh, often these suburbs find themselves overwhelmed by new growth. Oh my gosh, uh, we've got the new big box store, we've got the new strip mall, we've got the new drive through we've got residential subdivisions all over the place. How do we even keep up? And, and you find them hiring engineers and hiring planners to lay all this stuff out and design it. And they've got all their fancy projections and they believe they know everything that's going on. Uh, they're not going to make the mistakes that the idiots made the last time. They've got it all figured out. They're going to size things properly. They're going to set it all up. It's going to all work beautifully. Uh, see this everywhere. This is every suburb. I, I don't know any suburb that is in the growth phase today that does not have the moxie to think that they've got it all figured out. The people who came before them are idiots. They have it figured out and they are going to do it right. In this phase, as a reaction to that growth, what happens is a lot of regulation builds up. Land use regulations in terms of zoning, in terms of the codes that are applied from a building standpoint. There's a lot of process that is created because a lot of Dumb things are done. A lot of bad things are done. A lot of stupid things are done. And in reaction to that, we create all these laws and codes and, and regulations. This stretches into the stagnation phase because as things start to go bad, we react to the kind of pockets of decline. And, and understand, suburban development is by definition set up with very little interconnectedness between properties. So when you get decline, you don't get decline, uh, you know, in a block, you get decline one property at a time in kind of random locations that then start to have this general overall decline. Uh, you start to see, uh, the regulation ramped up in that stagnation phase as a way to deal with these problems. So in my hometown here, wow, we've got rental regulations now, right? Uh, we're going to make rentals go through all kinds of stuff. In fact, we have whole neighborhoods where you're not allowed to rent your property. I mean, imagine that. In the United States, you're not allowed to rent the property that you own. Uh, not allowed. Not allowed in this neighborhood. Rentals are bad. Renters are bad. Not going to have them. Uh, you have you know minimum house sizes that creep in. Uh, you know, we, we don't want decline. And so we're just going to mandate good. Um, you get things like, uh, different aesthetic standards that creep in say, well, you've got to have rock siding or you've got to have, uh, you know, natural wood siding or you, you, you know, we, we, as if the problem was not a lack of investment, the problem is just, you do have the wrong color of siding. And so we start to do, from a regulatory standpoint, all of these kind of things. 
we do this quite perniciously when it comes to businesses as well. Uh, we say you've got to have minimum amount of parking. Uh, you've got to have a minimum floor area in order to have a certain type of store. Uh, you have to have a minimum size. Uh, you're not allowed to have the traditional building where you would have the residence in back and the, the business in front or the residence above and the business below. Can't do that. Not allowed. Not allowed. Can't have an accessory apartment. Can't do that. That would be density. We don't want density in this neighborhood. So all these things start to accumulate in the growth phase, but then kind of in response to the stagnation and the kind of helpless feeling of pending decline, start to creep in in a huge degree during that stagnation phase. The problem is then when we hit decline, they're institutionalized. I mean, you've had decades and decades of this. And not only have you had decades of this, but your ordinances have been so kind of customized and refined to fit the neighborhood. And when I say fit the neighborhood, protect the interests there that are actually affluent enough and connected enough to show up and, and impact those cords and you know, those codes and ordinances and procedures. You've essentially set up a system that is designed to protect the last bits of prosperity that remain at the expense of everything else. And, and I'll relate this most specifically to the commercial properties. I wrote earlier this year about Dunkin' Donuts coming to Minnesota. Dunkin' Donuts was announced there opening up 50 stores in Minnesota. And when you go to the Dunkin' Donuts website, uh, it says if you want to have a franchise, uh, for each franchise you want to have, you need to have a net worth of a half million dollars with a liquid net worth, meaning cash that you can get in a short notice of a quarter million dollars. That's to start a donut shop, right? Now, our codes and our ordinances, and I guarantee you the codes and ordinances in Ferguson are set up to very easily accommodate a Dunkin' Donuts, right? If you wanted to open a Dunkin' Donuts in Ferguson, you could go to town. They'd probably give you tax subsidies to do it. At the very least, they would have a great spot for you. They'd have a wonderful strode for you to locate along. They'd funnel all the traffic into it so you could have really high traffic counts. And, uh, you know, it would be just easily set up for you. But if you are a, you know, let's say you're a, a, a solidly middle-class person in a stagnating neighborhood or a neighborhood that is just entering into the decline phase, and you want to go open a donut shop in a vacant space in the downtown, what, do you, what are we going to put you through? Not only are we going to put you through a, a ton of inspections, permits, you might have to get a zoning change. You might have to get a conditional use permit. We're going to require you to tear down buildings to put in parking lots. Uh, we're going to require you to, you know, do all kinds of things that are going to create, you know, because this is what we came up with during our prosperous phase that was going to help make sure that that growth we were having was going to be successful growth. These are all the things we came up with. We are going to make sure that you have to do all of those things to open your little donut shop. And what happens? We don't get the donut shop. We might get the Dunkin' Donuts, right? We might get the Dunkin' Donuts because the auto trip metrics might work for them. Uh, but we're not going to get the local entrepreneurs starting the donut shop. Uh, not only that, but in these places, you know, you have set up because of the way they are designed, the 
local streets empty in they empty into the collector streets which empty into the arterials which empty into the major arterials you you've essentially set up an a system uh of winner takes all i mean this is why walmart this is the walmart business model right uh we'll get everybody out to the major arterial we'll get the city to build us the interchange we will buy the property right at the interchange and then you know screw all you little guys in the neighborhoods uh, who are trying to make a go at it with the little corner market. Uh, we can just get everybody here because, you know, they're coming here anyway. And this is almost more convenient than your place off the side of the strode with the big curb where you got to drive around the block to make the left turn in. Right. Um, you know, we've, we've all seen this, uh, the way we've kind of tilted the scale in that direction. What we have is we have then a situation where as we enter into this decline phase, we're so we're so stuck with this system and we've equated it so much with success that we're not able to see past uh to something that might actually save us the idea of improving our lot by reducing regulation becomes almost antithetical i mean the regulation is the only thing keeping us afloat now today right if you're from one of these kind of pockets of prosperity in Ferguson, the idea that you would say, you know what, uh, we're going to create an area here with uh, no zoning code or with a two-page zoning code where we're going to let you do whatever you want as long as you meet these, uh, you know, four basic guidelines that's going to ensure you're a good neighbor. It, no, that would be impossible. Like we couldn't dream of doing that. Yet you look today. What's the most entrepreneurial place in the entire United States? I would argue it is the core of Detroit. Why? Because the core of Detroit has no rules, right? It has no rules. I mean, it has, it, it has some rules, but the, the, the rules that kind of govern a, a place like Ferguson, uh, they're just absent. They're just, they're not there. They don't have the resources, uh, to enforce them even if they were there. I've been fortunate to do a lot of work in Memphis, Tennessee, and I've seen in Memphis, and I'm not going to name names and I'm not going to get people in trouble, but I've seen in Memphis where, you know, the regulatory staff has said, all right, we see what you're trying to do. Uh, we understand. Uh, we're just going to make this work. Uh, we're going to, to the extent that we can uh, turn a blind eye or be accommodating or be real flexible uh, outside of the prescriptive rules that we're supposed to operate under because we know this needs to be done. And I would say as a bonus, we know there's not going to be any negative ramifications for us to doing it. That's what happens when you get through the decline phase, but you got to get through it first. And to me, uh, you know, and, and when I say you've got to get through it first, you've, you've got to get through to a point where all those things become so ridiculous that you just don't bother with them anymore. I mean, you want to open a donut shop? No, you've got to have 30 parking spaces. Well, I've only got four. Well, no, you have to have 30. Well, then I can't open the donut shop. Well, in Memphis, Tennessee, just open the damn donut shop, right? In downtown Detroit, open the donut shop. No one's going to come and say you got to have the 30 parking spaces. In Ferguson, they haven't reached that point yet. And so there's still someone there saying you need to have the 30 parking spaces. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work. As a result, we can look at a place like Ferguson, 25% of the population works in either retail or food service. You're not building any wealth working in retail and food service. All you're doing 
is sucking wealth out of the community. When you go to McDonald's, when you go to Walmart, there's not money that's recirculating around the community. Not in any meaningful, substantive way. That's, it's the modern version of mercantilism. It is essentially, uh, you know, mining the wealth out of these communities for the benefit of, of others. This is what happens when you get to the decline phase. It is the inevitable destination that all suburban, auto-dominated type places are heading. Uh, now, let me just answer one of the criticisms that I got when I wrote this thing. Uh, we have a, a wealthy suburb here in Minnesota called Edina. And someone emailed me and said, well, Chuck, what about Edina? Edina's been around a long time and it's still wealthy. Yeah, it's the pocket of wealth, right? It's the place that, you know, all the wealthy people have congregated. And so, you know, there's enough wealth there to kind of maintain everything and keep everything going. Uh, that's not a healthy place. That's not a, a healthy metropolitan area. Um, that is not a strong town, right? You can't have a strong town by just taking like all the strong people and putting them in one place, right? All, all the people who have enough. I mean, if you go to the 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 Fortune 500 list and and take, uh, you know, the the top 500 CEOs and put them in one community, would that be a strong town? I mean, they got plenty of money to maintain all their stuff, right? Uh, they're not going to come up. They're not going to come up short when they got to fix the street, right? No, that's not the way our traditional cities were built. That's, you know, not the way that communities are built, and it's not the way that we're going to have a strong country. At the end of the day, the thing about the strong towns movement and the thing about the notion of a strong town is it's in reaction to. Not just what we see in our communities, but what we see in the aggregate at the national level. We see a, a country really in decline, where we have gone from a, a Washington, D.C. level of how do we uh, allocate prosperity across the 50 states to how do we decide amidst scarcity what to do with limited resources among 50 states. And when we start to analyze that problem, we find that its direct cause, its direct root is that the underlying structure of our places is not generating wealth. It's not generating prosperity. It's not making people wealthier, more prosperous, more successful, more stable uh, over time. We are, in many ways, the most affluent nation in the world, yet most families have a negative net worth. How is that possible? How is that possible? Almost every city in this country is financially insolvent. If they did an honest balance sheet where they looked at their long-term liabilities and obligations and lined them up with the cash flow that they expect long-term from the tax base that they've created, they're insolvent. They do, they do not have the money to maintain and take care of and meet all the obligations that they have. They're insolvent. We are the most affluent country in the world, yet we're bankrupt, we're broke. Why is that? Why is that? There's a lot of reasons. And you know we could do many more podcasts talking about it, but I think at the core of it is that we misunderstand 
how wealth is created within our places, within our communities, within our families. And because we misunderstand that, because we have been conditioned and taught uh, that this illusion of wealth is actually wealth, that this uh, false growth we see in the early phase of this experiment uh, represented a, a true reality, we have become uh, numb to the decline or, or, or not able to fully comprehend the decline that we see around us. It, it, it runs counter to what we intuitively believe to be reality. We're wrong. We're wrong. And we have to start seeing it differently. You know, I've kind of run out of time here and I wanted to talk a little bit about the police thing. I started out with that clip from Ferguson. Um, let me just say this. I was in the, in the army. You've got a, as part of basic training, I did basic training between my junior and senior year of high school. I needed to pay for college. So I joined the national guard. I'm really glad that I did it. It, it taught me a lot and it gave me a lot of skills that I, uh, I wouldn't otherwise have maybe had. One of the things that you do in basic training is they put you in the gas chamber. Uh, you go in with your protective mask on, uh, you stand in what is CS gas, tear gas. Uh, it starts to burn your skin. It starts to, you have to roll up your sleeves and, and roll up your pant legs. It starts to burn everywhere. And then, uh, one row at a time, there's, they force you to take your mask off and breathe this stuff in. And they go down and everybody has to say something like your, we had to say your name, rank, and social security number. Uh, so just so they make sure you get like a good, you know, a good solid breath of this stuff in. You sit and breathe it for maybe 30, 45 seconds, maybe a minute. I don't know. It seemed like a long time for me when I was in there. The whole idea of this training is that they're teaching you to trust your mask. Uh, a, a gas mask, a protective mask is a really constraining thing. They're not very comfortable. And your inclination when you have it on is to want to rip it off because it doesn't feel good. But once you realize that, you know, you can sit there in the gas and wear it and you'll be okay. And if you take it off, you're going to experience this. You, you get a, you get, you learn to trust your mask. That's the whole point. So I have been tear gassed. <laughs> in a, you know, in a concentrated way, in an intentional way, in just the routine of army training, uh, that was not a fun experience. And when we're taking out tear gas and when we're using rubber bullets and when we're doing, you know, this is stuff that is, uh, not, it's become almost like routine crowd control stuff. Now we're used to this. We have, come to expect it almost. Uh, we're kind of numb to it. I'm not numb to it. Uh, I don't think it's okay. And I, uh, in many ways, uh, had my kind of deepest, darkest, uh, I'll say deepest, darkest suspicions, uh, affirmed in a way by the police reaction here in Ferguson. I'll go back to my military training again. Um, two nights in basic training when I couldn't sleep, you know, you, you go through a day of basic training, you're exhausted. You hit the rack and you're out, right? Two days I, I could not sleep and I couldn't sleep because my mind would not let me, my mind overcame the fatigue of my body to keep me awake, pondering things. Those two days, the day we did bayonet training 
And the first day we went out and did live fire at pop-up targets. Bayonet training, you run around with a bayonet on the end and you simulate stabbing people through the guts and ripping their innards out. Okay. Uh, when you do rifle training with pop-up targets, you have targets that look like people that pop up and then you shoot them, right? The most disturbing days of basic training were those two. Days when I sat in my bunk at night exhausted and couldn't sleep because I had to contemplate the notion that I would someday be asked potentially to take a life. Uh, as a 17-year-old, that's a, that's a pretty heady kind of experience to go through. I cannot imagine, and I have the deepest sympathy, and, and everyone should have the deepest sympathy for anyone who is returning from a war zone who has had to, you know, not only contemplate this, but in many cases actually experience it themselves. A, a horrific thing to have to deal with and live with. With that kind of backdrop, I'm appalled. I, I, I can't even fathom a police officer pointing a weapon at an individual. To me, you never point a gun at someone unless you're ready to kill them. When we see, you know, in cop shows and, and uh, you know, different, different scenarios where people are running around with drawn weapons and they're pointing at people and saying, you know, freeze, don't move. And that's, that, that's, the, that's the TV. That's movies. You, when you're a police officer, you do not pull your weapon unless you're ready to kill somebody. And you do not run around with snipers and machine guns and armored personnel carriers and point these things at crowds uh, of your neighbors. You just don't do it. You, you, you don't do it. And to me, I've watched the militarization of the police. I've served as a city administrator temporarily in one city. I've worked with police in a number of other cities. These are really good people. Like I say about firefighters, uh, they run into burning buildings to save people. Uh, the, the, the toughest call that cops get is the domestic dispute in the middle of the night because they never know what they're walking into. Uh, this is a dangerous, scary job. Yet the idea that we would arm these people uh, like we arm the military uh, is a long, long, long ways uh, from anything that is going to help us create strong, resilient, healthy communities. There's already in Strode America, you know, in, in the suburbs that we built, there's already this huge disconnect between a police force that is largely motorized inside a vehicle and a population that is motorized inside a vehicle. And when you get into a place of decline, a population that is walking around in these Strodes because they, they can't afford a vehicle, they don't have a vehicle. There's already an isolation there just physically by the layout and the design. When we take one of those groups uh, and we put them in uh, SWAT gear with uh, you know the, the bulletproof vest, the black uh, clothing, the camouflage, I'm like, why are you wearing camo? You're in the middle of a city. It's not like you're out in a forest somewhere. Why are we, why are we assaulting people in camo gear? You put them in camo. Uh, you give them night vision goggles, you give them machine guns, you have them ride around in armored personnel carriers. You talk about a social disconnect between the people who are pledged to serve and defend and the people they are allegedly serving and defending. 
I'll go back to Kunstler at the beginning. I'm surprised that more places haven't rioted, quite frankly. Let's end with that. Um, I think we've gone on long enough here. There's a ton that I could say. Um, for those of you that are hardcore strong towners, uh, every now and then some of you write me about the music fading in and fading out. Uh, you know, um, I, I've actually been meaning to update the end a little bit with some clips that I got. And today I got this one clip that was just really hilarious. I'll play the whole thing for you at an upcoming show. But I've added a couple things in. You'll hear Phil Davison, one of Justin and I's uh, best old friends here, in this uh, outtake clip. So that's it for today. Thanks, everybody. Uh <laughs> Uh, I'm getting delirious because it's one in the morning uh, and uh, I've been here at work far too long. So thanks everybody. Take care. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, the City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Hey everybody, I, I know that some of you don't stick around for our little gag at the end that I, I kind of have fun throwing in uh, every now and then, um, but some of you do, and I, I get the feedback uh, from you. It's kind of our little like inside joke, right? All these losers walk out before the credits are over. Forget them. Um, today, uh, <laughs> in this closeout clip, you heard a, a new thing. Uh, after Mary Cope saying, Chuck Marone has been excellent, or whatever she says. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, you heard some guy screaming. That was from a clip that someone sent me uh, on Facebook today that I have watched 50 times, and I've just, I laugh my head off every time. If you go to YouTube and type in Montreal traffic 6 a.m., you get a clip of this guy and he's just showing he's it's like his his view from his car there's just cars everywhere and he's stuck in traffic and i want i'm just going to play the whole thing from you i picked out like the choice clip that i used in the thing but here's the whole thing uh our little joke our little uh our little secret joke at the end take care everybody here's montreal traffic 6am so you you wake up good in the morning you know, you wake up in the morning happy, feeling good to go to work. And then when you, at 6 o'clock in the morning, at 6, there's, there's, there's traffic. At 6 in the morning, imagine at 7.
to, to me it just it just freaks me out the fact that there's no way of fixing it and anywhere you go if you take Jerry you take Jatalon anywhere you go there's fucking traffic who the fuck made this city who made this city <laughs> who made this city how many times have we said that